here at Hagerstown Church, and we are so glad that you are here with us. Um, Hubtown Kids, if you are in Blue Station, want to remind you and encourage you, uh, ages 3, 4, and 5, uh, you're going to be going right upstairs here in just a moment, so you're going to follow Auntie Sarah, Miss Sarah, Miss Sarah, and Miss Wendy. Uh, you're going to be going right upstairs. So parents, if you've not checked in your children, uh, check-in station is right there. Uh, so Hubtown Kids Blue Station, uh, you'll be going upstairs. And just a friendly reminder, the nursery area, our yellow station, is open through the service for you. Now, with that, 20 years after his retirement, he is still considered to be the greatest of all time. He holds the distinct honor of being a six-time NBA champion, six-time NBA Finals MVP, five-time regular season MVP, 14-time NBA All-Star, 1988's Defensive Player of the Year, 1985's NBA Rookie of the Year, 10-time scoring champion, three-time steel leader, two-time slam dunk contest champion, two Olympic gold medals, a Presidential Medal of Freedom, a multi-billion dollar athletic apparel line, He's one of the richest African-American men in the country. And perhaps most importantly, he was a star of the film where he led the ragtag tune squad to beat the evil monsters in a life or death game of basketball, Space Jam. It's my favorite movie. Michael Jordan is without a doubt the greatest of all time. Jordan also has some of the most impressive statistics for any professional basketball player with a career average of 30 points per game, six rebounds, five assists per game. But would we still consider Jordan to be the greatest of all time if his statistics were flipped? If he only averaged five points per game and 30 assists? If Jordan just sat on the bench his entire career, would we consider him to be the greatest basketball player in the history of the game? Even outside of the legendary era of 90s Chicago Bulls basketball, we all have our own ideas of what greatness looks like, do we not? Who do you believe was uh, the greatest American president and why? Who do you consider to be the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL? And I am sad to say that as of this last Super Bowl, the only correct answer to my question has to be Tom Brady. When you think of greatness, what comes to your mind? Maybe being the best at what you do, being number one. Maybe your own personal pursuit of greatness is one of pursuing superiority over mediocrity. Growing up as an Indian uh, immigrant in the greatest city in the world, New York City, greatness in my home looked like this. Academic excellence coupled with growing up to working a well-paying job so that the final result would be that others would praise me. But that was not my idea of greatness. My idea of greatness was to have a life of adventure. Maybe I'd be an astronaut, fly off into space. We all dream of glory, of winning, of being the best. Now, the human quest for greatness, though, is not an inherently sinful thing. It can be a very honorable thing. But in our post-Genesis 3 world, the pursuit of greatness has been distorted by sin and made into an ugly, distorted, and destructive force. 
Even the disciples of Jesus Christ were fixated on worldly greatness. But Jesus, as we'll see this morning, would give them a better path to achieve true greatness. If you have your Bibles, let's turn now to our passage in Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 30 to 37. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a physical uh, Bible with you, you can also follow along on the screens. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word for us. The main point that we'll be looking at from God's word for us this morning is simply this. That the Christian path to greatness is the way of servanthood. The Christian path to greatness is the way of servanthood. Jesus Christ both announces his impending fate and he will prove to his disciples to be the very exemplar of the life of service to which he calls them. We'll see two announcements this morning from our passage. Two announcements. The first, in verses 30 to 32, is the announcement of death and resurrection. And the second announcement is that greatness is through servanthood. So death and resurrection in verses 30 to 32, and greatness through servanthood in verses 33 to 37. So as we come to this passage, several important things have occurred. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And then in verse 31, Jesus makes his first announcement of his coming suffering, death, and resurrection. So we think that Peter finally gets it with his confession that Jesus is the Lord, and then he totally bungles it because he rebukes Jesus. Jesus then rebukes Peter. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Peter, James, and John witness Jesus' transfiguration. Then as we saw last week, Jesus healed a demon-possessed boy in chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. And now, this morning, we see Jesus continuing his extended private ministry specifically to the disciples. And look closely to our passage, and you'll see an underlying theme of both humility and suffering that is demonstrated by our Lord as he's with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. So let's consider now the first of our two announcements, death and resurrection. Verses 30 to 32, Mark records for us that they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus and his disciples just passed through Galilee. Galilee is important because it served as a center of operations of sorts for Jesus. And verse 30 is going to be the last time that Mark is going to reference this area until after the passion and the resurrection. We won't hear about Galilee until way later in chapter uh, 14, verse 28, and chapter 16, verse 7. It's a very important area because this is where Jesus called his disciples. This is where he taught great crowds. But now, Jesus is just passing through. What was once home is now in the rear view. And if you pay close attention, there's a certain melancholy to this verse that's embedded in this verse because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke records for us that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus was preparing to be betrayed, to be rejected, to suffer, to die at the hands of evil men. So he's passing through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know as he passed through. We've seen this behavior before. We've seen this in prior episodes. Jesus became wildly famous, but his ministry was no longer focused on the crowds. He was focused on teaching the disciples privately. So what did Jesus teach the disciples? In verse 31, it's very clear. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So this would be a shocking announcement to his disciples. But it's not the first time he's announced this. This is the second of three predictions that he makes of the fate that is waiting for him. All three predictions in chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verse 31, and then later on in chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, all three predictions share an identical three-part structure. This is really important. The Son of Man must suffer, he must be killed, and after three days, he will be resurrected. Jesus' three-time prediction of his death and resurrection has a unique application for us today as well. The disciples then needed to be instructed on what was about to happen. Today, as modern Christians, we need to be reminded of what has already happened. Chiefly, we need to be habitually reminded of the gospel. As Christians, the gospel is not something that we ever graduate from and then propel us into uh, more important matters. The gospel is not a Christian stepping stone. It's everything. It's the ground that we find ourselves standing on. The Christian life is one of cherishing the gospel, which is the crown jewel of Christianity. One of the primary ways that we keep on continually cherishing the gospel is by continually rehearsing the gospel to ourselves. The gospel that says that God, in his great love, became a man in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who suffered and died on the cross on our behalf as a substitute for the atonement of our sin. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled God's perfect law himself and took upon himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sin and trust in him. 
Friends, the good news that we cherish as Christians does not simply end with the death of Jesus Christ. He rose again from the dead after three days. He showed with his resurrection that God accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. That is good, good news. That is good news. It's a glass of cold water for our thirsty souls. By God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if we repent of our sins and trust in him, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. That is good news that we must rehearse. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning with us, we are so glad that you are here with us. We would love to talk to you more about what the good news of Christianity means specifically for you. If you're a younger Christian, a new Christian, and you want to grow and mature in your faith, we would love to help you. You are in a great place to learn and to grow about who Jesus is. You can come see me or any of the pastors, Pastor Josh or Pastor Tim, or maybe a fellow member here who might have invited you uh, after the service. We need to be continually reminded as a people of this glorious truth, that faith in Jesus Christ is saving grace, whereby we rest and receive upon him alone for our salvation, trusting him to forgive our sins and guide us to eternal joy on the basis of his divine power and atoning death. Friends, do you think about the gospel often? Do you need help remembering the gospel? Well, consider picking up a copy of Milton Vincent's a gospel primer for the Christian as part of your daily Bible study and uh, daily uh, Bible reading and devotional time. It's a very short book. Uh, You can just read a couple of brief paragraphs a day to learn and be reminded of how the gospel impacts your daily life. For example, do you find it difficult to forgive others and to let go of old grudges? Remembering then that Jesus, who alone can rightfully hold something against another and do so without sin, died in your place for your sin. Remembering that will help us to see that the person that we are contending against is not an enemy or an opponent that we must overcome, but as someone who is in need of the same mercy and forgiveness that you have received by God's grace. Do you find yourself, maybe, needing to win an argument, expressing your opinions with no charity for disagreement or regard for the person with whom you are contending against? Well, consider this, that Jesus, who alone had every right to silence his opponents, went to the cross silently, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus' humility, even to the point of death, crushes my need to win and gives me the grace that I need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Vincent, in A Gospel Primer, he offers really helpful counsel to us. He says this, Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, 
the gravity of my sins and the crucifixion of God's own son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. So in his prediction, Jesus used a very interesting phrase here. Simply reading this in English uh, would appear as if the murderous, raging crowd uh, is going to take Jesus by force and kill him, right? Not necessarily wrong, but in the Greek, it's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, Simply, in the Greek, there's actually a reference to God without using God's name for fear of defiling his holy name. What's really being conveyed here is that God the Father in his sovereignty and in his inscrutable judgment, is handing over his beloved son to humanity. Jesus, being fully God, truly God, knew that one of his own disciples, Judas, would betray him, literally handing him over into the hands of unlawful men. But Judas is not who Jesus has in mind here. It is God the Father who Jesus has in mind, according to our text. Jesus came to do the will of his heavenly Father. And to do that, he understood that he would have to suffer at the hands of sinful people. Jesus understood that suffering was the Father's plan and not a fallback. Consider Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. In the backdrop of verse 31 is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. This is a a really common verse to uh, think about uh, during Good Friday, right? Here's what Isaiah records for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Suffering would precede glory. This was true of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and it's also true of the Christian life today. Suffering will precede glory. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32 But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Kind of a straightforward phrase. Son of man's going to be delivered. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. But they don't get it. The disciples, again, once again, they've proven themselves to not understand. They could not grasp it. The Greek is a little bit more colorful in uh, in its language. The Greek literally means they were ignorant or the meaning escaped them. Literally, just flew over their heads. The irony here, though, is that Jesus wasn't speaking in a parable. He was speaking directly and clearly. It was God's will for the Son of Man to suffer, die, and be raised. If I told you, uh, if I told my my children uh, to go clean their room, there's really not much room for interpretation. Clean your room means clean your room. But the disciples, they weren't understanding what Jesus was saying so 
clearly. Why don't the disciples understand? Because the disciples were preoccupied with their own political and cultural assumptions of greatness. We're going to see that more clearly in the second announcement. Greatness through servanthood, verses 33 to 37. Mark continues to record for us, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So following in verses 33 to 37, we see a jarring contrast between Jesus' humility and the disciples' desire for distinction and recognition. Jesus spoke of suffering and dying. The disciples, though, were concerned with how great they would be. So in verse 33, Jesus and the disciples, uh, they've now come to Capernaum, and Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Why would Jesus ask them this question? What were you discussing on the way? Was Jesus ignorant? Well, no, of course not. Surely he knew what they were discussing. Jesus Christ is truly God. But here's a helpful counseling tip. You should never underestimate the power of a good question because questions prick the heart. So, what were the disciples' answer to Jesus' question? There was no answer. Just silence. The disciples were overcome with shame and embarrassment, and rightly so. The Lord had just told them that he was on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die, but they had fallen into a childish debate over which of them would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Who would be number one? Who would be at Jesus' right hand? Friends, silence is often a wordless confession. The silence of the disciples to Jesus' question was their shameful confession because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The political and cultural assumptions of greatness and superiority dominated the minds and hopes of the disciples. And I wonder if that is true of us. Do we, church, identify as evangelicals primarily out of biblical and theological conviction or simply as a political voting bloc? As Christianity increasingly becomes the minority voice in the culture, are we more concerned with gospel proclamation or with securing our own cultural comforts? The disciples saw Jesus as their ticket to religious and sociopolitical greatness. As one commentator noted, their preoccupation with rank and standing is in character with what we know of Judaism in general. Early rabbinic writings frequently comment on the seating order in paradise, for example, and argue that the just would sit nearer to the throne of God than even the angels. Even earthly orders of seating at worship and meals were seen as preparation for the eternal order 
to come. Uh, Psalm 68, verses 24 and 25 is an example of that. Not surprisingly, the journey to Jerusalem had been fanning the flames of messianic and eschatological hopes in their minds. Surely, the kingdom would break forth in Jerusalem with Jesus and with him, they at its head. So, were the disciples concerned with the coming suffering and death of their master? No. What were they preoccupied with? Their own cultural preferences and on their own future rank and standing in the coming kingdom. They assumed that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to roll into Jerusalem, inaugurate the kingdom of God, and they would just be able to ride his coattails to greatness. What does their silence to Jesus' question reveal? It reveals how saturated they were with the temper of their own culture, where questions of precedence and rank were constantly dominating their attention. And you would think, though, that the disciples would have learned their lesson from this awkward silence, that securing their religious and sociopolitical greatness was not Jesus' purpose in coming, in suffering, and in dying. Luke records for us in Luke 22, verses 24 to 27, that during the Last Supper with the Lord, a dispute also arose among them. Literally, dinner table. They're arguing with one another. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. As 21st century Christians, are we any different or in a different class from Jesus' disciples who were jockeying against each other for a position of greatness? Friends, how often do we preoccupy ourselves with our own cultural and political and personal priorities, even to the detriment of others? Rather than being as one who would be reclining at the table, Jesus was among them as one who served the tables. Jesus' call to us now is the same call to his disciples then. Look at verse 35. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus was fully aware of the disciples' cultural and worldly understanding of and preoccupation with greatness. What he does here, though, is deeply profound. Jesus sat down, called the disciples to himself, and he began teaching them. And look really closely at verse 35. Does Jesus immediately condemn the disciples? No. Nor does he condemn their pursuit of greatness. Rather, he reverses all human ideas of greatness and rank as a practical application of the great command of love for one's neighbor. And... Jesus reaffirms the call to self-denial, 
which is the precondition for following Jesus. You remember what he said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus turns their economics around. Instead of delivering a kingdom that they expected, Jesus gave the disciples an upside-down kingdom. He says, look, if you want to live, you must die. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. Do you want to be great? Then you have to suffer. He who is first shall be last, and he who is last shall be first. In other words, the path to real biblical greatness is not self-glorification but self-crucifixion. Jesus himself shows us the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God because as the rightful king, he was not met with a coronation. Jesus, as the king, was met with crucifixion. How did the king of glory demonstrate his greatness? Not by taking a crown of gold and jewels, but taking one of thorns. Instead of taking a throne, he took upon himself a cross, a cross that you and I deserved. This is how Jesus demonstrates greatness. The economics of the kingdom of God is not measured then by how much we can secure and keep for ourselves, for our own fleshly comforts. Rather, the economics of the kingdom of God is measured by the giving of ourselves in service to our fellow saints. Jesus himself said, for it is better to give than to receive. He goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? then the path for you to take is the path of servanthood. John Piper in our family has been uh, one of God's uh, most gracious gifts to us. Uh, we call him Grandpa John at home, and, and here's Grandpa John encouraging us out of this passage. Jesus recognizes his disciples' quest for greatness as a good thing that has become ugly and distorted by sin. And instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. Nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for pursuing true greatness or true significance. I think that's because he created us to be great and to be significant, to come to the end of our lives and feel that they were well spent and well invested. But what has happened to this God-given longing for greatness is that it has been corrupted by sin in two ways. It has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be known as great. And it has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be greater than someone else. Think about that. We do not just long to be great. Sin has corrupted our longing for greatness so that we would be known as great and so that we would be greater than someone else. Here's Grandpa John again. 
In other words, the joy of true greatness has been perverted by sin into, a, into the carnal pleasure we sinners get when others praise us and when we think we are greater than others are. Jesus sees this in his disciples, and instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which it will be radically transformed into something beautiful. He says true greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second or or third or fourth, but true greatness is the willingness to be last. True greatness is the willingness to be last. And true greatness is not positioning yourself so that others praise you, but true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everyone, to be a blessing to as many as you possibly can. So Jesus doesn't condemn the quest for greatness. He radically transforms it. Go ahead and pursue it, he says. But the path is down, not up. The path to greatness is down not up. Jesus calls us as we follow him to be servants of all. Regardless of how charismatic or bombastic personalities on television might be, do not be fooled into believing that greatness is found in strength or by putting yourself first. According to Jesus, greatness is only achieved through servanthood. And the rest of the New Testament echoes Jesus' call to servanthood. Consider, for example, Christ's example in, of humility in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 9. And just a quick note on Paul's passage here. He doesn't give these verses uh, as mere suggestions, as if we can just take it or leave it. No, he says, look, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's how you do it. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 9 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, we always have to ask when we're studying the Bible, if you see therefore, what's it there for? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Did God the Father exalt Jesus highly because he came and took the world by force? No. He exalted Jesus Christ because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or to be lauded. Jesus was exalted by the Father because he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. We'll see this fleshed out again when we study Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, where Mark records, And Jesus called to them, uh, called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." 
and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45. Consider highlighting this verse, writing it down, meditating it on it this week. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christian authority is meant to be exercised in service to those under authority. And Christian greatness is only achieved through servanthood. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. The more common and humble the task, the greater the deed. For humility is the essence of him who said, for I am among you as one who serves. Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. What stops you from becoming a servant to all? What personal preferences or comforts do you have that you can look at and say, I am going to put this away and joyfully serve this person anyway? The fast track to growing in Christian love and humility is to become a servant to your fellow neighbor with no need for your service to them to be reciprocated back to you or even to be recognized. One of the most popular books on marriage in the Christian publishing circles completely misunderstands how we are to serve others, particularly our significant others, our spouse. When we see by faith that even Jesus came to serve and not be served, we are then set free to no longer fervently need our own backs to be scratched. Because Jesus came to serve and not be served, I don't need my spouse to learn how she can fill my tank. The biblical prescription, rather, is that I can look to the Lord who humbled himself and then look at my spouse and say, I am going to enter to serve. Husbands and dads, when you come home from work and you're tired and you want some quiet time to unwind, ask the Lord to help you to enter to serve and not be served. Just as Jesus came to serve us, ask the Lord to help you lay down your own desires for much-needed rest and quiet so that you may serve your wife and your children. You will likely be tired But biblical greatness and deep joy comes through serving others. Husbands, we can serve our wives better when we relent on our own need to be heard and instead we listen to our wives to hear her thoughts, hear about how her day went and ask, how can I make things better for you? How can I make things better for you? The same is true for wives wanting to serve their husbands and their children. If you're single or you don't have kids, how can you leverage your time and space and resources to serve those around you? We're given another object lesson by the good Lord Jesus. To sharpen his point, Jesus gave the disciples uh, this illustration. It's, It's another object lesson that he's been showing all through the Gospel of Mark as he's teaching his disciples. Verses 36 to 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name 
receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So in Judaism, it's important to understand that children and women were largely just auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men, either as fathers or husbands. And children particularly were really good at illustrations of being, quote-unquote, the very last. As one commentator said, the conclusion that Jesus draws from the child in his arms is subtle and surprising. The child is not used, as is often supposed, as an example of humility, but an example of the little and insignificant ones whom followers of Jesus are to receive. Disciples are thus not to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces them. It is Jesus, not the child, who here demonstrates what it means to be the servant of all. Receiving those who represent Christ, like the apostles and their teaching, means we receive Christ himself. And not just Christ, but also God the Father, the one who sent Jesus for us. And this is just another object lesson Jesus used to teach the disciples. So what are we to learn from Jesus' lesson? What are we to learn from the Lord teaching his disciples? Does the idea of serving others with no reciprocity or regard for yourself trigger in you a knee-jerk defensiveness? Or do you cheerfully look for opportunities to serve your fellow members? Since the path to biblical greatness is servanthood, how can you serve someone whom you don't even know? And one of the reasons, or, or and, and another question to that, how can you get to know someone if you don't step out of your comfort zone? That's why one of the reasons your church membership directory is going to be a great help to you because you can use that to regularly pray for the fellow members of your church and intentionally get to know them over time. You don't have to know everybody all at once, but as you come to know your fellow members more deeply, you will inevitably find more and more opportunities to serve and to care for them. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, Peter tells us, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, as good stewards of God's varied grace. How can you use your spiritual gifts and your natural abilities to serve one another, to be good stewards of the grace that God has given to you? You know, maybe you're uh, naturally, spiritually just gifted with kindness and patience and gentleness. One practical outlet where you can serve uh, would be right upstairs with Hubtown Kids, caring for and teaching our children. You know, maybe you're somebody that's really gifted with hospitality. You, being gifted with hospitality, can open up your home to host a new life group and welcome your fellow church members in for mutual encouragement. Friends, your home does not have to be perfect and spotless to do this. God is literally in the business of using the messy things in our lives to make beautiful things. Consider how you can use your time on Saturday to better prepare for the Lord's Day so you can come to church early. 
Maybe then you can introduce yourself to someone who might be new and sitting alone and, and then invite them to come enjoy lunch with you after the service. Consider rearranging your schedule to prioritize the gathering on Sunday. That way, you can encourage and love God's people and look for ways you can serve the saints. You never know how you can discover a way that you can be a servant to someone else. The very path that God may be wanting to put you on right now to achieve true biblical greatness. For those of you who are already giving of yourselves regularly in Christian servanthood, let me encourage you to remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. Friends, don't grow weary. Keep serving. Keep going. Remember Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Do you serve other people and then feel like maybe they've not reciprocated service to you or they've not expressed their gratitude to you and so you feel discouraged and, and maybe you just don't want to do that anymore? Well, friends, people you serve might forget to thank you. They might overlook the service you've given to them. But God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. What does this brief verse tell us about servanthood? First, God sees your service to the saints. He's not unjust to overlook it. He doesn't forget. He doesn't overlook what you have done for your fellow saints. Secondly, by serving the saints, we show love for God's own name. Serving the saints is us displaying the love that we have for God and his name. So how can we, in love for Jesus Christ, become servants of all? You know, we live in a society and a culture that is obsessed with fame and achieving greatness. But in the Lord Jesus' economy, greatness will not be measured by how much others applaud us. It's only achieved through servanthood. How can we as a church receive those who are different from us? How can we welcome those and become a servant to those with whom we have very little in common with, socially, politically, economically? How can we, church, best serve those whom God has put before us and not whom we wish God would have put before us? Friends, let us look at Jesus Christ who gave his life in service to us to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us then look to him and together serve the saints of God and show our love for his great name. Let's pray. Father, your name is indeed great. You are indeed a good and great God. Jesus Christ is a great Savior. 
And the church is a great gift to a world desperately searching for greatness. Father, we thank you that achieving greatness does not come in and of our own strength. Father, we thank you that you have shown us greatness in Jesus Christ, who took on the form of a servant, though he was truly and equally God the Son. God, we pray that we would look to Jesus Christ, that we would cherish the gospel, that out of love for your name, we would seek to become servants of all, that we would seek to serve anyone, everyone, those whom you have put before us. And Father, we thank you. We rejoice in the fact that you do not overlook us, but that you look upon us, that you receive us in Christ. Lord, help us now to make much of Jesus Christ in service to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.